Hello and welcome to My Life's Work podcast, where we explore our diverse set of career paths and the decisions that lead people to where they are today. I'm Sarah. And I'm Nathaniel. Today, we're thrilled to bring you the story of the life's work of Washington, D.C.'s Ward 6 Council member Charles Allen. Charles's path led him from a suburb of Birmingham, Alabama, to rural Virginia, to South Boston, to D.C. From taking vitals in an urban health clinic, to watching hearings on the Senate floor, to campaigning in Minnesota, to crafting legislation of his own. But all the while, he's been guided by one thing, a desire to be a helper. I love the idea of, of helping someone. Uh, so in what I envisioned the job to be uh, was someone's in crisis, someone's hurting, and I'm going to go try to help figure out how to make that better. I'm going to be somebody who, who helps, helps them fix what's ailing them. And while he certainly does fulfill this role of a helper on the D.C. Council, that was not the job he was referring to in that clip. You see, the young Charles growing up in Homewood, Alabama, would have laughed at the prospect of one day becoming a D.C. Council member. Instead, he had wanted to become a doctor. I was a lifeguard. I went and got CPR and first aid training. I kind of became, among my friends, the, the medical health nerd, uh, and I really enjoyed it. So I, I kind of thought that's what I was going to do. As a senior in high school, when most students are frantically beginning to consider what they want to do with their lives, Charles was still committed to a future in medicine. But he had another decision to make, where he wanted to go to college. Charles had two options. I had... The easy option of just going to like a state college in Alabama, um, easy to do, um, and didn't I, I? I think they sent me a postcard to like apply, and like I just filled it out. Like that—that that was all I had to do. Or go to a very different school where none of my schoolmates were going to. That school was Washington and Lee University, and while he didn't know anyone else who was applying, he did have one friend who had gone. And so I got in a car, and they invited me to come visit for the weekend, and I went up. My car broke down about an hour and a half north of Birmingham. I'm on the side of the interstate. I had to hike back like 10 miles back to an exit, find a gas station. And no one had, this is 1995, so I don't have cell phones. Uh, so I go to a payphone, like call my mom and dad. I'm like, well, this is a disaster. And um, they came up and my mom decided to bring both, uh, she had a car and my dad had a car and they drove up with each car and my mom said all right here are my keys go keep going i was like no it's like i'm four hours behind schedule already like there's no i got i got eight more hours to drive there's no way and my mom wouldn't take no for an answer and was like you're gonna you're going um you may not go to school there but you're gonna do this trip you're gonna finish this because you need to see something different charles fell in love with that something different and in the fall he headed off to lexington virginia with his heart still set on becoming a doctor What Charles's mom must have wanted, and what he did in fact experience, was not just a different location, but a different perspective. I think a lot of my um, decisions I ultimately made, I I really pinpoint back to one course in college, one professor uh, who, who lit a spark and really changed my entire trajectory. At Washington and Lee, they offer a spring term when students take only one or two intensive four hour a day classes. And I was really trying to be intentional about, uh, you know, understanding things other than my own experience and really trying to do, just do better. So Charles decided to take a course called Malcolm and Martin about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. It was eye-opening, absolutely fascinating. I loved it. I felt like I can't, I can't believe so much happened in Birmingham and Alabama and I'd never been taught it. It was as if I was being taught 
the things about my hometown, the things about where I grew up, and no one had bothered to ever talk about it. Returning to Alabama, Charles saw his hometown with new eyes. In Birmingham, there's the 16th Street Baptist Church. That's the church where the Ku Klux Klan planted bombs and killed little girls. I didn't even know it existed. I didn't know about the 16th Street Baptist Church until I had left and then came back. My grandmother uh, lived in Montgomery, Alabama. I went down to Montgomery all the time. I did not know there was a Montgomery bus boycott. The professor, Harlan Beckley, noted Charles's interest and asked if he wanted to be a part of the new poverty program he was creating. And he said, all right, you seem to really enjoy this class and seem to get a lot out of it. I'm starting a new thing next year, and it's called the poverty program. You're going to take interdisciplinary classes, and um, you stay on your biology degree. You're not going to change, but it really is going to broaden you, and it's going to make you learn more um, than, than you already have about studying poverty and what are the impacts on poverty. And then you want to go be a doctor? Then learn about what the impacts of poverty are on healthcare. I was like, all right, that sounds great. Uh, let's do that. The summer after taking the Malcolm and Martin course, with a new focus on social justice and his enduring interest in medicine, Charles headed up to South Boston to volunteer in a free community clinic. He had already taken his MCATs, and he had his med school applications ready, but he hopped in the car and started driving north. I packed up a bunch of stuff in the car and took off. I made it about 10 miles, and I had, a, I, I had to pull off to the side of the interstate. I was like, what? What am I doing? I'm driving to Boston? Like, what? What am I doing? And I, I really thought about, like, turning around. But I was like, I calmed myself down, and then I kept going. And after a summer spent sleeping in the attic of a church and volunteering in the clinic, he decided that rather than focus on individual health as a physician, he wanted to focus on community health as a public health expert. This is obviously a big shift after years of assuming he wanted to be a doctor, but he enthusiastically followed this new path and applied to public health programs. After receiving his master's in public health with a focus on epidemiology and policy, Charles followed in the footsteps of many aspiring policy experts and came to Washington, D.C. I fell in love with the city immediately, but I was in a fellowship that was with the federal government, and I hated it. I hated the pace of it. I felt like I was completely disconnected from what I was doing. Um, I really I really felt like there were good people and good work. I just felt personally and professionally like it just it wasn't clicking. He decided to switch gears and work for a local DC organization. During my fellowship, though, I also got to go see, I got to go down to like uh, Senate and House hearings and go down and learn and watch and listen to uh, elected leaders debate things and, and make decisions. Watching these hearings, Charles was first introduced to Paul Wellstone, Democratic senator from Minnesota. I was like, who is this guy? I, I want to learn more about this. And really just became enamored with the leadership and the vision and everything that he was doing. Senator Wellstone was in the middle of a difficult re-election. So at the prompting of friends who saw his growing interest, Charles signed up to volunteer on his campaign. Um, that morning, I signed up on a website, to, and they, they were like, we're going to put you up there, here's your airfare, we're going to put you up in a, in a church, you're going to sleep there, um, and for the next three weeks, you're, you're ours. But a couple hours after he signed up to volunteer, Charles heard that Wellstone and his family were killed in a plane crash. And I didn't know what to do. And I remember I called up the same place that I had just volunteered, and I'm just like, I don't, I, I don't know what we do. And this this person's probably 20 years old. Like, but in my mind, this was like this wonderful sage person. He was like, 
we, we will continue. I don't know what we're going to do, but you're still going. We have a campaign. We have an election. It matters who wins that seat. And I went. Turns out we lost that election. Walter Mondale took over the seat um, for uh, Senator Wellstone. We got crushed in the election. It was horrible. Um, but I also learned a lot about what it means to believe in something and then to go fight for somebody who's going to go get elected to make decisions. And more than that, even, just like the Malcolm and Martin course had once opened his eyes to issues of justice, the Wellstone campaign taught Charles the importance of elected officials. It matters that you have good policy, that like there's lots of really great smart people out there uh, who can tell you, here's the way you can try to fix this problem. But if the right person's not in the right seat, it doesn't matter. I remember I also got interviewed by um, like Minnesota NPR or something like that. And they were like, well, what do you, you know, you've lost, what are you gonna do? And I just kind of said something like, well, I'm going back home to DC and I'm gonna pick myself up and we're gonna keep at it. So that's what he did. And a little while later, you heard about Howard Dean, a Vermont governor who was running for president. He was a doctor and a governor, and he was running on universal health care. And so I'm like, all right, let's see what we can do with this guy. Like, how can we help? In D.C., we'd organized all these grassroots volunteers. We were tabling at Eastern Market. We we're knocking on doors. We could not get a single elected official to, get, to, to come, come to our meetings at all. That's when Charles met Tommy Wells. And I convinced Tommy... Um, you should, you should come on over to this meeting. He was thinking about running for council at the time. Uh, and he was like, well, I should probably, if there's 75 people showing up, like, why not show up? So he endorsed Howard Dean. He got involved. And then he and I struck up a friendship basically from that point forward. When he decided to run for Ward 6 council member, he asked Charles to help run his campaign. I was a, a healthcare policy analyst um, and was doing work in D.C., but was like, I've never run a campaign. You want me to run your campaign? And he said yes. And so I decided to take a huge leap of faith and I quit my job and I went and ran a campaign. They won and Charles became his chief of staff. And um, then basically had just the, an immense opportunity and experience to work with him um, you know, for, for his two terms. And then when the opportunity came up that um, he decided to run for something different and the Ward 6 seat came up, I finally at that point was said, you know, I think I'm done trying to get other people elected. I think that um, I have something to offer. I think I, I'm the right person at the right moment and, um, and decided that I would put myself out there and ask the good people of Ward 6 to give me a shot. And fortunately, they did. As a DC council member, Charles plays a varied but important role in the city. We have one of the weirdest jobs in the world. Um, while we're sitting here, my mom just texted me because she just saw me on MSNBC. Um, Moments ago, uh, I was over at the Capitol with Attorney General Carl Racine and the head of the Anti-Defamation League as we are launching a civil suit against the Proud Boys, against the Oath Keepers, against the insurrections on January 6th. I also spent um, this weekend with my daughter up in, um, in Ward 5 where a little girl had been killed on her bike uh, in an intersection. And I'm walking through that space and really trying to focus on like, one crosswalk and one stop sign. Um, it's a weird job um, in that you have to be, you know, you're constantly um, rightfully focused on like that's that crosswalk, that stop sign. It's, it's like life and death. It's, it's incredibly important. And holding the people that attacked our country accountable is incredibly important. And you've got to be able to do both those things at the same time. 
While he's far from where he thought he'd be when he signed up for the Malcolm Martin class as a pre-med student, Charles continues to be grounded and guided by the values he learned from that course. Thinking about social justice and what does justice mean, um, I think is kind of what is at my core. Um, I, be- I, I came to that space from a perspective of, of healthcare, uh, of recognizing and kind of thinking that's what I was going to work in, is that public health is a justice issue. So how do I work to make sure that people can have a right to the health care that they need, they deserve? Um, and I, that's where I started in my space. As a council member, he's continued and broadened this focus on justice. Three pieces of legislation that he is particularly proud of exemplify how he uses the lens of social justice to shape all policies, not just criminal justice, but also policies ranging from education to transportation. Right out of the gate, Charles crafted legislation that combated the inequity in access to books for children in D.C. This initiative, Books from Birth, provides a free book every month for children zero to five. What it's done to get books into the hands of kids all over our city, especially lower literacy communities, families that have generations of low literacy, it's phenomenal. I love it. Like We've given out more than a million books now, um, and I'm really proud of that. A more controversial effort, but one that he's equally proud of, reconsiders what justice should look like for young offenders. Um, we went through a period of time in our city where we, we decided to sentence people to essentially life terms. Um, in, the, in the 90s, there was, you probably have heard the term super predator, uh, there was national legislation that was pushed that really targeted black communities, period and just went with extreme sentencing. And the idea being like, if you can just lock people away enough, like then maybe you can make a difference on public safety. It was a completely wrong approach because there were real people that got sentenced to decades and decades and decades. Um, And so we created something so that after someone has served, so they have been convicted, we're not saying it didn't happen. Uh, We're not saying the harm didn't happen, but that after someone has, has served 15 years, when, for something they did when they were a kid, they can go back in front of a court and say, I'm a different person than I was then. And I'd like you to consider, can I show you how I've been rehabilitated? Can I show you how I can be a, a safe and productive member of, of the community? It's kind of like a parole board, basically, is what it is. Um, but can I do that? And then a judge reviews everything. The original survivors and victims of the crime have a chance to weigh in, uh, all that. And I was actually, um, yesterday, I was talking with a guy who just came home uh, three weeks ago. Um, he, he served 21 years. He, uh, went away when he was 18 years old. He spent more of his life locked in a cell than not. You know, he, he was telling me this story. I was asking him about a couple of questions and he was telling me about how to go through this resentencing process, he had to write his life story. He had to write, write down all the things that happened to him, um, and who he was. And he, the way he phrased it, I thought was amazing is he talked about writing the story of who I am today. He, I, and then I read my, my case files. I read, the, I read what I had done when I was 16 and 17 years old. He's like, I don't, I don't even know that person. He's like, I, I am such a different person. And trying to explain that to a judge that like, here I am as a 40-year-old man trying to you know, be accountable for the things I did when I was 16 and 17 years old, but I'm a different person. Um, and he is now home. And he had his first Thanksgiving meal uh, and he, he was blown away that you get seconds at Thanksgiving. 
Um, he talked about uh, his, you know, his nieces and nephews who were eight, nine years old when he went away that are now helping him find housing and helping make sure he's got what he needs and help support him through this. He's like, you know, they didn't, we didn't have cell phones when he went away. Like, like the, the world changed so much and having him do this. Um, but then now he wants to be a mentor to young people. He wants to find kids that are at risk of doing harm and go in and intervene now before it gets, you know, like when those first red flags come up, like he wants to now dedicate the rest of his life to focusing on young people. It took a law to get passed and it was hard to get that law passed. Um, and that absolutely is one of the things I'm incredibly proud of that when we passed that law uh, and we did it, actually, we were meeting in Zoom. Uh, and I remember very much when, we, when the final vote tally came in and it was almost a unanimous vote in support. It was a lot of work to get there. Um, I had to turn the camera off, actually. Like I needed just a moment of like, we got that over the finish line because it was such a big deal. And watching um, so many of the guys that are now coming home, they're now just pouring themselves back into the communities. Uh, and they, they talk about it this way, that they now, their job now is to heal the harm they caused. Um, and they are, they, they are bound and determined to do that. That makes our city more just and it makes our city safer because they will have positive interventions with a kid who may, you know, may, may choose to pick up a gun somewhere. And so that was definitely one of those proud moments. As the chair of the Transportation Planning Board for the D.C. metropolitan region, he brings this justice mindset to an entirely different venue. So I think about justice from the standpoint of access to transit. Um, so why am I pushing for our Metro for DC where everybody would get a hundred dollars a month on Metro? Because I think if you take a look at the ways in which people have subsidies for Metro, people who earn over a hundred thousand dollars a year, almost three quarters of them have a employer based subsidy for their transit. If you look at people who make less than $40,000 a year, 11% of them have a transit subsidy from their employer. Something's not right. And so what can, what can I do from a justice perspective that also is good for transit. So if I can have more people be able to afford the bus and the rail, then that means they can get to work, they can get their kids to school, they can get to the grocery store. Um, and that is a justice issue. The DC Council is currently facing the difficult challenge of figuring out how to guide the city towards recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. In some ways, this moment is pulling on the building blocks of his life's work, his public health expertise, his appreciation of the power of policy to make real change in the everyday lives of citizens, and his commitment to social justice. I'm really almost consumed with thinking about what does our recovery look like, right? Like, it, it is really hard to, I think, get everybody to see or understand how inequitably this pandemic not just hit our country, but hit our city in terms of who got COVID? Who died from COVID? How many families lost family members from COVID? Um, who lost their jobs? Who lost their housing? And who didn't? I really think a lot about the emphasis we've got to place on what our recovery looks like. And as we think about what an equitable recovery means and what it looks like, I think we have a huge opportunity for us to really think about, um, about where we go from here. And what type of city do we, do we want to be? Do we want to be one that like, okay, that divide was okay with us? You know? Or is it like, no, no, no. We kind of have a duty to try to help close that. Charles is running for a third term as Ward 6 council member this year, and he is clearly determined to continue to lead D.C. towards a more just future. Getting a chance to, to serve this role has been amazing, um, humbling, wonderful. I feel like I, and 
and my team and my community have been able to do some really incredible things. Um, I also think with how many crises and challenges are confronting us, you know, we have a, we have a massive challenge around public safety. We have a massive challenge around education for our kids, and especially those that, get, that fell behind the last two years. We have a massive challenge in terms of our economic recovery for our city. We have a massive challenge to get Metro back up on the ground and running. Um, and so as we think about all those challenges that we've got to confront, that we've got to face, I think that I'm somebody who has a vision about where we need to go. And I think that I have now been able to also prove that I am that type of trusted leader that can help bring people along, make good decisions, make tough decisions. Um, but elections are about the future, not the past. So, you know, I can talk about the things I've done, but it matters a lot more about what I want to do. But what his past reveals is those core values and principles that will continue to guide Charles forward in his life's work. One of the most fun parts of talking with our guests over the past year has been asking them what advice they would give to young people, or their own children sometimes, about pursuing their own life's work. We've asked the question to seven different guests, and each one has given us a different answer that speaks to how they have navigated their own journeys. We have felt particularly fortunate to get to hear these answers as we begin to make our own choices about our paths moving forward. Since we are only able to share a small fraction of the conversation we have with our guests with you in each episode, to date, Nathaniel and I are the only ones who have benefited from these snippets of wisdom. Here's a montage of some of the advice shared with us. Follow your bliss. Do what makes you happy. Like, do what makes you excited. You know, and don't give yourself excuses for why it won't work. You know, just, just try. And maybe it won't. But you can make it pretty much anything work if you're really committed to it. I think when we're aspirational and we're reaching beyond what we kind of know and see, that's when barriers are broken down and the greatest things can happen. Be open to different things. Know that what you start, where you start, may very likely not be where you end up in your career. It's cliche, but it's really the truth. Work hard. Work hard and work thoroughly, because that's the only way you achieve results. Give your goal the respect of treating it like it needs to be worked on, it needs to be fulfilled and achieved. Give your goal that respect. Those were the voices of K.K. Otteson, Dr. Jennifer Cartland, Craig Wallace, and Martha Pope. In listening to our previous guests' voices, you may have discovered an episode you missed. You can always listen to past episodes on our website, mylifesworkpodcast.org, or wherever you listen to our podcasts. We want to conclude this episode with Charles Allen's advice. That thing that you think is the scariest of the options that are in front of you, you should probably pick that one. Because if you succeed, it's going to be awesome. If you fail, you're going to really learn something from it. Um, and if you pick the thing that was kind of the comfortable, safe thing to do, you're not going to get the same thing out of it. Um, and you can be great at it. You can be successful at it, but you may not get the same thing out of it. And we only get one trip in this rodeo. Do the thing that scares you the most. Do the thing that scares you the most. Yeah. Yeah.